So we're going to be reading from um, Ephesians chapter 5. Just two verses today. Ephesians 5, 1 and 2. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Good morning, church. So good to be with you this morning, open God's word together. We're continuing on in a series talking about our church's vision and mission and three core values. And we're right in the middle this morning of talking about those core values, which are one, be with the Father, two, love his family, and three, make disciples. And I want to offer an image this morning to help us grasp some of the relationship between those three core values. So the church, the church is a little bit like a big and beautiful home filled with room after room. And the home is built and owned by God himself who made this home so that he could adopt lost and desperate children and care for them there as fathers. If you're a Christian, you live here. You live in the Father's home. But you didn't always. For a lot of your life, perhaps, you lived far away from this home. Your life was characterized by the opposite values. And you were running away without a desire to know this good Father. And then he called you by name. And he so loved you that he gave up his son so that you might be adopted as a child of God. And now you live in the Father's home. And one of, one of your best privileges, your daily delights, is to go into your room and spend unhurried, quiet time with your Father. To go in away from every other eye to hear from him, to talk with him, to know his love, to learn his ways, you delight and you need to be with the Father. That's core value number one. And then as you, as you leave your room and you walk around this home, one of the things you realize is that there are a lot of rooms that are empty. They're not filled yet. And you, you think that the Father still has a lot of children who are not yet home. The family isn't full yet. And one of your roles as a child of the Father, as one who knows his love, is to regularly go out, outside the walls of that home, walk among other children, and invite them in. Say, there's more room. The Father has made a way. You are welcome to come. In other words, one of your roles is to make disciples. But between those two core values... Be with the Father, make disciples. There's another one. Because no matter where you go in this home, except for the privacy of your own room, you find yourself surrounded by siblings, other children whom the Father has adopted, sitting next to you right now.
And one of your father's deepest desires is that you would love the other children in this home as he has loved you. (laughs) Even though the brothers and sisters around you are not always the people you would expect to find in your father's home. They're not always the people you would choose to live with if you had a choice. Some of them are harder to get along with. And yet, in Christ and in this home of your father, every sibling you see is a beloved child of God. And at the center, part of the center of your father's purposes in this world is that you would love his family. And so that is what we're going to talk about this morning. What does that mean to love the father's family as you have been loved by the father? So with that, let's turn our attention to Ephesians chapter 5. The book of Ephesians, if you're not very familiar with it, and actually this was somewhat new for me as I dug into the book in preparation for this, it's a letter of love in a lot of ways. There are six chapters in this book, and can you guess how many times Paul makes mention of love in some form, talking beloved or commanding us to love or talking just about love in general? 23, 23 times he's talking about love. It's six chapters, just shy of four times per chapter, which is a lot of love. The story of love begins in Ephesians 1, not first with God's love for us, though that's a major theme, but with the Father's love for the Son. In chapter 1, 6, Paul calls Jesus the beloved, which is just a glorious name for Christ. He's not only the son of the Father, he is the Father's beloved one, the one the Father loved and the Son loved in return before <laughs> anything else was. And that's why John, in his, uh, in his letter, can say that God is love, because before there was anything else, there was love in God. And this love was so big and so powerful and so expansive that it overflowed to create people like you and me, whom the Father could fold into this love. And then, in light of our fall, this love was so big that it overflowed to save people like you and me so that we could be brought back into this love. Paul says that in love, God predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. So in love, God takes sinners and he makes them sons and daughters. In love, he takes people who are so far away from him that they feel like total lost causes, and he covers their sins by the blood of his son, and he brings them close to himself, into his own family forever, not only forgiven, but an adopted child of the Father. The love is so high and so wide and so deep and so long that Paul gets down on his knees and prays that we would have the Spirit's own strength to comprehend it. The love of God is so big that you need God to know it. And even then, Paul says, it surpasses knowledge. It's going to take an eternity to unfold the love of God in Christ to you, Christian. And even then, there's going to be more to know. So that's the story, largely, of of love in Ephesians 1 to 3. It's a story of God's love with our love playing a very minor role. 
And then in verses or chapters four to six, the second half of the letter, Paul's going to turn and he's going to start talking about our love. What does it look like to live in light of the love of God? So take a look now, if you would, at Ephesians 5, verses 1 and 2, which is where we're going to camp out. Therefore, Paul says, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So what does God expect of the children whom he adopts into his family? What are the house rules in the family of God? What is the banner over the front door? Be imitators of God. God so loves you, child of God, that he, he not only purposed to adopt you as his child, but he has committed to making you look like his child, whatever it takes. He wants you not only with him, but to be like him. In every way, you can be like him. So he wants you to take your, your hand and put it into his, like a little child with his or her father, and to, to look up and walk with him and learn his ways and plant your feet in his big footsteps. Which raises the question of just what, what does that mean to imitate God? Because there are all kinds of things about God that we're not going to imitate. We shouldn't try to imitate. No one's going to be omniscient. <laughs> no one's going to say, let there be and watch things appear like God does. And so the next sentence, Paul zeroes in. What does it mean for a human being to imitate God? Here's the very heart of it, which isn't a surprise given what we've seen so far in Ephesians. Here's what Paul says. Walk in love. Walk in love. Do you want to be godly? Do you want to be the most like God that you can be in this world? Then don't just read your Bible. Don't just study theology. Don't just busy yourself with spiritual things, but give yourself heart and soul and mind and strength to love. And yet, not just any love. Because we all, as I'm sure you know, we have our natural ideas of love, and they do not always line up with what God himself says is love. I have my natural ideas of love that don't always look like the kind of love that Paul is talking about here. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, if you've read his little book, Life Together, he says, I do not know in advance what love of others means on the basis of the general idea of love that grows out of my emotional desires. Only Christ in his word tells me what love is. So we need our natural ideas of love passed through the filter of the word of God so that it comes out looking like God's own love. So what kind of love does Paul have in mind here? If you wanted to summarize this passage and this sermon in a sentence, it would be this. Beloved, love as Christ loved. Beloved, love as Christ loved. Which has two parts of it that show some of the distinctness of Christian love. Number one, love comes from the Father. And number two, love follows the Son. So we're just going to look at both of those now. First, 
Christian love comes from the Father. Take a look again at verse 1 with me. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. Do you see what Paul does here? He not only says, be imitators of God. He doesn't just say, walk in love, even though he could. Because the path of Christian love does not begin with the command to love. It begins with the identity of being a beloved child. And not just at the beginning of your Christian life, but every single day. Every day you're supposed to wake up in Ephesians 1 to 3. And every day you're supposed to live the rest of your day in Ephesians 4 to 6. Every day is a waking up to the love of God and then a walking in the love of God Paul didn't have to remind us here. He spent three chapters already talking about the love of God. But here, he comes back to it. I mean, we should know this already, shouldn't we? (laughs) I need to remember. I need this reminder. Because I don't know about you, but I can hear about the love of God, the, the goodness of my Father for three chapters, and then I can forget it by chapter five. I don't wake up most mornings with a deep sense of being a beloved child of God. Not on most days, some days. I need to remember every morning, sometimes every hour. Sometimes that's the day's biggest battle, is to walk not only in a head sense, but in a heart sense of the love of God, because my heart is forgetful. And over and over again in God's word, he reminds us. He tells us again. And he does so right here in chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, because he knows that the only way you and I are going to walk in a deep sense of love toward each other is if we are resting in a deep sense of love from God. Love for the family of God only comes from the Father. So here are just two small applications of that point that love, the love that Paul is talking about here, it comes from the Father. The first one is that the most important thing that you can do for the people in your life, those who are close to you, including this church family, the most important thing you can do is to daily be with the Father. It's not just a personal thing. Personal devotions are not just personal. They have massive effects on the people around you. Everyone is influenced by by whether you are with the Father on a regular basis or not. The best marriages have two spouses who daily come to the Father for their deepest sense of identity. The best marriages have two, uh, uh, excuse me, I just talked about that. The best friendships, the best friendships have two people who come together so knowing the love of God that they don't need to try to grasp it from each other. The best churches have people who daily are filled up with the Father's love so that they go and find other children of the Father to pour it out upon. So that's one. And then second, when you notice that something in you is off in relation to the community around you, it's often a sign that you need to go and spend some unhurried time with your Father. So when you see in yourself a hunger for the praise of other people or just, you just want to be noticed, when you catch yourself defending yourself in a conversation, when you see that patience with others is coming slower and irritation is coming 
quicker, it usually means you need to go and close your door and sit down and hear again from your father. Whether for a minute, whether right now in the quietness of your heart, or whether you have time and can get away for an hour. And do you know what your father loves to do in those moments when you come to him with a heart that is just twisted up? Loves to straighten it out. He loves to forgive you for anything that needs forgiving. He loves to speak again this word over you that we're seeing in Ephesians 5 as he spoke it again and again and again throughout this letter, beloved child. And he loves to send you back to his family with a fresh sense of his love. Say, go love my family. So, love comes from the Father. That's our only shot at loving each other as we ought to, is to daily be filled up like a dry riverbed with the water of life from God so that we have something to give to the thirsty people around us. But then what does it look like when it does flow from us? What does the love of the Father look when it goes outward? How do we know that our love is godly? How do we know that our love is Christian? Look now at verse 2, Ephesians 5. Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So here's our second mark of Christ-like love. Love comes from the Father and love follows the Son. It looks something like Jesus in this world. Our mission, as we heard a couple weeks ago, is to follow Jesus in everyday life and help all kinds of people do the same. And so our love, the aim of our love is to follow Jesus in everyday life, to look to him, to see how he loved. And I want to identify here, just in verse 2, three ways that we see the love of Jesus and therefore what it would look like for us to walk in it ourselves, to follow him in his love. Number one, it is creative love. Number two, it is costly love. And number three, it is cross-shaped love. So first, Christ-like love is creative. And by creative, I mean that it has an imagination and an initiative to it. It has eyes to see needs. And it has a mind that is imaginative and dreaming up ways to meet those needs that it sees. And then it has a heart that is willing to move forward in action in a kind of make-it-happen kind of way. I'm going to love this person. Because the love of Jesus began when he saw us in our desperate need. <laughs> he noticed. He, he saw, though he is so high. And even though our situation seemed like a total lost cause, if you, if you know what God is like, it seems like a total lost cause. He's holy. He's glorious. We're ruined in sin. How is this going to work? He finds a way. He finds a way to save us in a way that not only maintains his glory, but displays his glory. He's imaginative. And then he not only sees us and dreams of a way to save, but he acts. He takes the initiative. He steps from heaven to earth. He takes on a body so that he can give his body up on the cross. And now, Paul says, walk in that kind of creative, initiative-taking love. Walk into a room like this. Be the kind of person that walks into a room like this 
and sees needs and sees people who need love and then ransack your imagination for what it would look like to love them in specific ways and then pray and step to make it happen. And I wanna offer to you one practice that may be one of the most important things we can do to love each other like this. And that practice is intercessory prayer. By which I mean praying for one another specifically and by name in a thoughtful and focused way. I honestly feel like I am still learning to know what it means to pray for people. I know that I'm supposed to pray for people. I think every Christian knows that. But left to myself, what happens is that I, I just kind of have a, have a list of names that I run through in a quick and superficial way. I'm learning that prayer actually goes slowly and thoughtfully and specifically <laughs> brings people to the Father and wrestles sometimes on their behalf. There's a reason Paul talked about remembering people in prayer and even wrestling on behalf of people in prayer rather than just a quick kind of cursory kind of thing. Because three things at least happen when we devote ourselves to praying for each other in a slow and thoughtful way. One, most obviously, God answers our prayers. In his sovereignty, he makes things happen through our praying that would not have happened otherwise. He heals people. He heals people. He provides jobs and houses and children. He delivers people from temptation that they have fallen into 15 times before. He sustains hearts in the midst of deepest sorrow. And I hope this is encouraging in particular for those in this room who have limited physical capacity. You may wish that your body would allow you to love people in greater ways than you are able to. But if we believe what God says about prayer, then one of the greatest ways that you can love the people in this church, that you can love the family of God, is to regularly bring them to the Father wherever you are, even if you can't lift a finger. So that happens, God answers, but then something else often happens when we pray for each other. Our hearts are often warmed. I had a friend one time who said that it is hard to hold a grudge against somebody that you're praying for. It's true. At least that you're thoughtfully praying for and actually wanting their good, praying for their good. Often when we pray for each other to the Father, the Father gives us his own heart for each other. And then third, not only are our hearts warmed, but very often the Father gives us his own ideas for how to care for each other. He knows best how to care for each other, and he can give us those ideas. So imagine with me that you are praying for Tony and Emily Wilson, or for Johnny Efteland, or for anyone else in this room. You're, you're, you're sitting or you're kneeling in your room, and so you just take a minute. You stop. You think. What's going on in their life? What have they shared recently? You start to see needs that you didn't see before, or, or you notice things that you've heard before, you've thought about, but not really deeply. And as you start to pray for these, you, you feel yourself drawn out toward them. And maybe as you rise from prayer, you think, I can make a meal. I can watch their kids. 
I can text an encouragement. I can call them up and pray. I can meet with them on my lunch break. Creative ideas for how to love each other comes. If that kind of prayer, that kind of intercessory prayer is new for you, I would just suggest starting small. Make a list of people in your MC. Commit to praying for one person or couple every day in a slow and thoughtful way and see what God does. (laughs) Because do you know that there is a whole world of good works to do right here in this church for those who have the mind and heart of Christ? We just need eyes to see them. So Christ-like love is creative love. And then it's costly. Christ-like love is costly love, which is another way of saying that it is inconvenient love, at least to our flesh, because it interrupts our plans. It calls us late at night. It calls for us to go far beyond what we feel like is comfortable in our personality and to give away a lot more than we may have imagined at first. We don't need to look hard in verse 2 to see this in Jesus. Walk in love, Paul says, as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. Sometimes act as if this verse said, walk in love as Christ loved us and wished us well. Walk in love as Christ loved us and helped us when he had the energy and it fit into his schedule. But the love of Jesus went farther than that. Can you see that he gave up the most costly thing that he had? Because Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, the very best thing he had. And so, church, if our love isn't costly, if it doesn't call us to give away things in our lives that we hold really dear, then it has a lot more room for Jesus in it. Because if you just survey, even at a brief glance, the one another commands in Ephesians and throughout the rest of the New Testament, it doesn't take a big imagination to see that this is going to cost something. It costs to show regular hospitality to one another. It costs loads of time and grocery money, my goodness, inflation, and sometimes the niceness of your stuff it costs. It costs to weep with those who weep. Do you feel that? For some of us, genuinely entering into the suffering of another person, patiently sitting there, listening, not offering a quick pat on the back, takes an incredible amount of emotional energy. Easier to stay away. It costs to enter into the suffering of other people. It costs to speak the truth in love and exhort one another every day. I would rather encourage someone than exhort them any day of the week because exhortation is uncomfortable. It's awkward. It's hard. There are probably people in this room and you, you, you can think of a person who you think is walking down a dangerous path and you haven't told them yet because telling them would cost. It costs to use your spiritual gifts to build up the body of Christ. We're going to do God willing, the participation mic later on today, and some of you may feel like you have a word of encouragement or upbuilding or prophecy for the church, and you're not going to want to say it because it costs what other people might think of you. I'm not saying now, hear me, that there's no room for boundaries in the Christian life, that there's, there's no place for 
adjusting on a course when you're heading toward burnout? Because there is. There is. (laughs) But some of us need to remember that Christ-like love is supposed to cost. It's supposed to. It's not strange when it feels like you are pressed beyond measure. And so if you feel burdened right now in the cause of love for other people, it may be that you need to pull back and the people in your life are gonna be, the people who are closest to you are gonna be the best to help you discern that. You should bring it to them. But it could also be that Jesus is inviting you into a deeper experience, a deeper fellowship with him in the costliness of love and that he is able to meet you there. However low you humble yourself, he's able to meet you there and give you strength for every step and that this might be the place where you encounter Christ more deeply than you ever have before. And not only is he able to encounter you there and strengthen you there and minister to you there and give you joy there, but he is able to remind you that the cost that you pay in the cause of love is worth it. It's worth it because you get to walk close with Jesus and because you get to see a sister, for example, freshly encouraged because you opened up your home to her. You get to see a brother rescued from the path of sin because you spoke a word that he needed to hear. You get to see the body of Christ built up because you used your gifts. So, for the joy that is set before you, church, you can endure the cost. We can. So that's one and two. Christ-like love, it's creative. It moves out in imaginative ways. It's costly. It gives not only of the hand, but of the heart of itself. And now third and finally, we get to the most distinct, the most unique part of Christ-like love, which is that it is cross-shaped. The love of Jesus not only sees needs and meets them, sometimes at great cost. The love of Jesus also sees sins and it forgives them. The love of Christ receives offenses and it overlooks them. The love of Jesus feels wounds and it doesn't return them. You may have noticed that uh, the passage here begins with the word therefore. Therefore, be imitators of God. That word points us back to chapter four. Just the last couple of verses are most relevant here. Look with me, verse 31 of chapter four. Paul says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. If you are left to yourself, how are you most naturally disposed to respond when people sin against you? Some of us in here respond in obvious and aggressive ways, what Paul calls wrath and anger and clamor. Other people, others of us in here respond in in subtle and in passive aggressive ways, what Paul calls bitterness and slander and malice. How did, how did Jesus respond when we sinned against him? Not with wrath, not with anger, not with clamor, not with bitterness or slander or malice, but with kindness 
and with a tender heart (laughs) and with forgiveness. That is the kind of love that Paul has most in mind when he tells us to walk in love. Walk in that kind of Christ-like love no matter what kind of history you have in responding to other people's sins, whether aggressively, whether passive-aggressively. Put it off now and wear the love of Christ-like mercy. I need to hear this word regularly because <laughs> I don't know about you, but it is really easy for me to walk into the church, even after years, many years of being part of churches, super easy for me to walk into the church and to carry in false assumptions about what this family is going to be like. It's easy to expect that no one is going to hurt you here. It's easy to expect that nobody's going to say something foolish or insensitive here. Or to expect that nobody is going to deeply disappoint you here. And then you are hurt. (laughs) You are offended. You are deeply disappointed by somebody close to you. And in that moment, what can be so disorienting, you think, "That's, that's supposed to happen out there, not in here, not in God's home, not in God's family. But here, in this verse, Paul is saying, no, it does happen here. It does. If you get close enough to the people in this family, someone is going to sting you with their words. Somebody is is going to do something to you that makes you feel, it's just going to make bitterness rise so quickly and just going to be there. It's going to feel like your patience is pushed beyond the breaking point. And, and, and God wants you to know, wants us as a family to know that this is not strange. And not only is it not strange, but get this. The hardest moments, the hardest moments are meant to display the love of Jesus like none other. The love of Christ comes to the surface in a family like this in the hardest moments most. Because moments like that are meant to show that what binds this family together is not similarity, not affinity, not just a common niceness that helps us all get along, but a common experience of mercy. We have been forgiven, and we cannot forget what it feels like can't forget what it feels like to have our sins passed over, to have our, our, our offenses overlooked, and not just overlooked, but covered with blood. Can't forget what that feels like. Moments like these are supposed to be a little reflection of the cross, where Jesus met our sins with his great love and bore the cost of our forgiveness rather than striking back like he so easily could have. Because the heir of our Father's home, church, is grace. The atmosphere of our Father's home is grace. It's grace in every single room. So, far be it from the children of this God to suck the grace out of his home and replace it with bitterness or anger, or passive-aggressive manipulation, or a quiet distancing from a brother or a sister whom God calls beloved. Would you treat 
bitterness in your heart like you would treat a thief in your home and not do anything to entertain it or to welcome it in or to pamper it, but to get it out as soon as possible. So ask yourself, who in this church do you find hardest to love right now? What relationship feels most strained to you? Where do you feel most tempted to respond like you used to? And now recognize that that relationship, that person is likely ground zero for displaying the love of Christ in your life. So now I'd just like to turn to those who are visiting here with us this morning, those who who don't have a church home, who are wondering maybe if this should be it, or those who are not yet walking with Christ. And I'd like to invite you to come into this family. It's not because it's a perfect family. It's really not. (laughs) We are all still figuring out what it means to walk as beloved children of God. We're all still stumbling forward as we follow Christ and the love that he showed to us. (laughs) But what we would invite you into is a community like this, imperfect and flawed, but held together by a perfect Christ. And we would invite you to discover that every time this family fails you, that Jesus doesn't. And that he invites you even now to come with the forgiveness that he won at the cross and to take a room in the Father's home. So, church... Go and love God's family. It is a beautiful family and an unusual family and a sometimes frustrating family, but go and love this family because you are a beloved son or daughter of God and this is exactly how Christ has loved you. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, that your love is deeper and higher and wider and longer than we'll ever come to the end of, can't come to the end of it. And so we are not left in this calling to love your family. We are not left to the small love that we find within us right now. But thank you that you are able to pour your own love into us, and that is what we ask for. We we, we ask for your love to love each other that you would fill us up morning by morning with a fresh sense that we are your beloved children and that you would send us out day by day with a fresh resolve to love as Christ loved us. Pray that you would expand our capacities for love in this church. That you'd expand our creativity. We would see more of how to love each other. We would be more empowered with how to love each other. And our love would look a lot more like Jesus. I thank you for all the ways that is true right now. You have been so good to us. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.